Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 12th, 2022. As always, I'm in San Francisco. We've done a lot of shows recently on community. There's a big challenge, a crisis of communities in America. Uh, earlier this week, I talked to the um, business writer Christine Porath on how to master community. She is also the author of Mastering Civility. She has a new book out, Mastering Community, The Surprising Ways Coming Together Moves Us from Surviving to Thriving. Communities are all the rage, perhaps because they're in such scarcity. Um, today, we're talking community with one of the builders of a real community. Summit is a, and I'm quoting from their website, is an ecosystem that exists to connect and nourish global makers. Um, it brings together Summit um, like-leveled or like-minded entrepreneurs, creatives and entrepreneurs, to support one another to, to live, and I'm quoting the website carefully, their biggest lives. I'm not entirely sure what a big life is, but perhaps we all want big lives. Um, it is a series of events, Summit, which brings together people um, around the world to celebrate, I guess, innovation and their own networks. Um, and as I said, it really focuses on community. And borrowing from the website, we pride ourselves on community design, gathering around collective values, shared practices, and thoughtful live events. Um, Summit has eight principles. We'll come back to this, including embracing the unexpected and building friendships. Um, and uh, the four founders of Summit have just come out with a new book, Make No Small Plans by Elliot Bisnow, Brett Leave. Uh, Jeff Rosenthal and Jeremy Schwartz. And I'm thrilled that one of those co-founders, uh, Jeff Rosenthal, is joining us from another conference, the TED Conference in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, Jeff, why, is, uh, why has community been so important in the creation and nurturing of Summit? Well, Andrew, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks to the, the listeners and the viewers. Um, a community is everything with Summit. You know, we started the organization when we were 24 years old. Um, you know, we were easily the youngest and least experienced people uh, at the event. And uh, we were young entrepreneurs. We really just wanted to meet other interesting people that were also building things. Um, and so we cold called and Facebook messaged and got together a group of 19 people 14 years ago. Um, and that first event was 19 and then those people invited their friends and it got a little bigger and you know then we were hosting events at the white house and chartering ocean liners and buying you know ski resorts within uh the next five years so i think that if you if you go all the way back to the beginning um you know our community was really all the wealth that we had we weren't particularly intelligent we're likable but we're not you know sparkling um and you know we didn't have capital we didn't have connections but uh what we did have was you know a trusted group of friends that we were building through this network and through this platform that we were adding a lot of value to through the friendships that they would build. So what I would say is that community is priceless. Um, you know, one relationship with somebody that you keep for the rest of your life or that you know uh, 
exponentially impacts your business or your venture, it's invaluable. And for us, especially from where we were starting from, it was really all that we had. So I would, I would say that, um, you know, the more diverse the inputs, the more complex the outputs and through, you know, a community platform, you can really go to scale. It's, it, it's possible to have success at a small scale with you and a couple of people, but if you really want to do something big, something impactful, it's essential to have a community. You keep on talking about community, Jeff, but it's, it's a conference. It's not a real community. You don't actually live together, do you? Well, um, you know, it's 14 years old. Uh, there is an annual conference. We also own and operate Powder Mountain, the largest ski resort in the U.S., which we built a physical town on top of. We built five neighborhoods and have hundreds of neighbors and hosted tens of thousands of people there. And, um, you know, with, with regard to Summit, there is the annual event. As you said, there's also Summit Junto, which is our personalized boards of directors business. Um, so the idea that like you sit on advisory boards or boards, but you don't really have one for yourself. So all of our efforts, whether it's small events in cities, large flagship events, platforms like Junto or Powder Mountain, the intention is the same. It's in large and small ways to gather like-minded, diverse thinkers that through those interesting fun, dynamic, shared experiences will go on to build great things together. Jeff, you're talking to me from the TED conference in Vancouver, which is a particularly exclusive event for wealthy, well-connected people. Aren't you yeah. guilty of the same thing, for better or worse? You attract smart, well-connected, dynamic uh, entrepreneurs. What about the vast majority of people who are excluded from these kind of networks? Um, ours is a very inclusive network, and it's much less uh, expensive. Not to say it's cheap, but comparatively to a lot of the other global. Well, when you say expensive, tell me a little bit about the event. I mean, what does it involve? How do you how do you get an invite, and how much does it cost? Yeah, so uh, the way that most people have been connected to Summit over the last 10, 14 years is that someone else that was a part of the community who came to an event or that we knew personally said, "Hey, this person would be great for Summit," and then they met either myself or one of my co-founders or someone on the Summit community team who had either a call or an in-person meeting with them to really check against two criteria. One, are these people innovators in their field, regardless of the discipline? And two, are they just kind, open-minded, nice people that we'd wanna be around regardless of personal and professional success? So the, the, the pricing of our tickets historically has been anywhere between you know, $3,000 to $10,000. It's all inclusive. So it's your, your room, your food, your nightlife experience, you know, the conference itself. Um, and you know, we really run it as like a, more or less a break-even business. The that doesn't sound very inclusive to me, Jeff. Three to ten thousand dollars to pay for a ticket. You have to travel. You have to pay for accommodation. What's inclusive about that? It just depends on what scale we're talking about operating at. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're a business owner, and you're investing in yourself and in your network and in, the, in your exposure and your, you know, the community of people that can unlock value for you. Um, it's, this is the cost. Like, it's not like we're making millions of dollars on hosting conferences. On the contrary, we, we run them more or less at break even. Um, and it is expensive to charter ocean liners, build mountain towns, uh, you know, build campsites on top of mountains, buy out hotels. Um, and so for the experience that we provide, um, we would, I would, I would challenge to say that we could try to find another global conference that can do it, you know, in a more inclusive manner. Not to say that, you know, everybody gets to participate. One of the things that's great about TED is TED Talks, that they're free and they're on TED.com and 
We certainly have some talks that are available online, but it's not our strong suit. What we're really best at is the in-person gathering. It is in breaking bread with one another. It's in introducing people that otherwise wouldn't meet. So that's nonprofit founders. That's people in their 20s. That's people in their 90s. It's a very global community. It's a very, very diverse community. Um, but to your point, yeah, I mean, like, it is very difficult when you're 23 or you're, you know, in your early, in your early career and you're trying to make your way. I certainly remember not having, you know, a couple thousand dollars to spend on myself or my self-improvement or a conference. But, um, you know, we are intended primarily for business owners and, and people that are building ventures. So coming back to this idea of community, it's a very, for better or worse, and I'm not necessarily critical, but it's a very privileged, a very exclusive community of successful or at least relatively moneyed entrepreneurs who are able to come to these events. Um, is that different from the kind of searching for community that many Americans are looking for in, in, in 2022, do you think? I think that it's lonely everywhere at whatever uh, strata you find yourself. I think that if you are afflicted by ambition, creative ambition, um, whether that's as a business leader or an entrepreneur, a social entrepreneur, an artist, an architect, it's a lonely ride. Um, you're probably deeply passionate about something that's going to take a long time to master. And so you're going to be an apprentice for quite some time. And when you do find enthusiasm, I love, you know, in theos, the root of enthusiasm means with God. So if you find enthusiasm around any of these things and you meet people who also dedicate their lives to these spaces, it's a really enjoyable conversation. They don't care about your stature. They don't care about your bank account. They care that you are into the same thing that they are into. So um, I think that's an affinity group. And I think that, you know, removing everything else, our affinity group is entrepreneurs. Our affinity group is, you know, creators. Um, and so the, the positive externalities of that is that we get to build these immersive, amazing events um, and have the budget to do so because a lot of those people have been successful in that skill set. Um, so I, I think that the tools exist digitally now to find your tribe, to find your people in a different way. Um, but it really does take dedicated people that get a lot of joy out of the community aspect, the gathering, seeing their friends succeed. Like, you know, myself and my co-founders, we probably get more dopamine and serotonin from seeing our friends' wins that happen through our platform than our own bank account growing, right? And if that's not your orientation, you're likely approaching community from an extractive place, which means that you're really looking to network. You're not building community. Um, communities do your networking on your behalf. If you've built friends and if you've built trust, those people get pleasure in your successes. Um, and so that's what we've really been careful to steward and build Summit. You're not convincing me, Jeff. You you talked well, about. Well, I mean, you're your not. Community. You're not. You don't seem like you're convincible. I don't know what your experience is. Well, you you talked about your community um, in Powder Mountain, which again looks very attractive. I, I I would love to be part of it myself. If you want to give me one of your houses there, um, but it, it seems, and I and I was looking at a, a Wall Street Journal um, article about it. I mean, it seems incredibly exclusive i mean you need many millions of dollars to go and live in one of your in one of your communities um so i don't have a problem with it it's just it doesn't sound to me to be in any way inclusive it's the reverse of you can you community. can get in a car and drive to powder mountain right now well tell and me a little bit about can, powder, can... powder mountain jeff well what exactly is it what do you do there and 
how do you become part of that community? Uh, so this is initiating a conversation that you're, you, it's clear that you don't know many people that you're either participated in our conferences or events or. I don't um, know anyone probably. Yeah. I'm not part of that world. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would, I would say again, there's nonprofit founders in their early twenties that we don't charge anything to be a part of summit. We have, you know, robust fellowship programs. We have, you know, all manner of, of, you know, things that we try to do to, um, create more accessibility for those that we think really either are creating impact in the world or have the potential to. Um, but there is, to your point, a cost to all of that. In terms of Powder Mountain, because I'm answering a few questions simultaneously, um, you know, we thought in 2012, 2013, that in order for a community like ours to exist over time, it would need roots. If you look at the history of movements, the history of communities that have had impact and effective change, um, typically they have to last for quite some time and without a physical home, we didn't feel like we really had that. And when we, you know, found Powder Mountain, um, it was a broken private equity deal. It's the largest ski resort by acreage in the United States. It's in an unincorporated community. There's no, there's no mayor in Eden, Utah. There's county commissioners. There's no street lights, no stoplights. It's just this beautiful, beautiful, wonderful place. Um, and you know, we crowdfunded the money from the summit community, um, people that became neighbors ranging from, you know, quarter million to millions of dollars, um, who all, you know, essentially got home site credits for, you know, coming in to the debt vehicle to help us buy the mountain. Um, and in terms of the people that participate, I mean, a lot of those folks, whether or not you, you know, buy what we're selling, if you, if you believe in this concept of sort of open door community, that's why they bought into this, this, this place. They're not in Aspen, not at Yellowstone Club, they like the values of, you know, meeting new people, getting inspired by new ideas, having a conversation with somebody that they otherwise would never overlap with. So a lot of those folks that did, you know, purchase homes and build homes there, use those homes as platforms to really empower their friends and their communities and people that otherwise for sure can't afford to own a home there. Like, I don't, I don't own a home on Powder Mountain. I'm 37. I'm still you know, like building my network. Okay, my I mean, I assume that how much, but the most of the homes look, I mean, again, to me, they look beautiful. I mean, we'd all love to obviously own these kind of homes. T totally. But I mean, to, to answer your question, you can literally drive to Powder Mountain. You can go to the Summit Lodge. You can meet people. There's a different culture um, with a different set of values to where it's, it is inclusive. The idea is now, if you're just looking to like, you know, if you're not driven by a passion, if you're not building something, if you're, you know, then it's really not your group. Like it's very opt-in, it's very self-selecting, but I, I would argue that, you know, it is inclusive for a certain type of psychographic. I didn't um, get that. Could you try again? Sorry, go on. Uh, yeah, I was just saying that I think that, okay. you know. So we, we did a show recently uh, with a, a, another writer, um, Jeff, Donald Cohen. He's written a book, The Privatization of Everything. Um, and he argues that the looting of public goods is destroying American democracy. Are initiatives like, private, uh, like Powder Mountain, I mean, that's essentially privatizing land in the name of community is that fair or is there a public element to this in, in it's issue? a public resort so it's what not, does that mean not, we didn't take anything private so it's 
but 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 it, but it privatizes the land and you're selling it was off already land. private land so it's 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 basically an entrepreneurial initiative is that fair yes creating a, a community i'm i'm curious we also did a show with a historian daniel horowitz entertaining entrepreneurs on the sort of the phenomenon of shark tank and creating a, a cult out of entrepreneurship what he calls the unreality of life in america do you think that there's some truth to that that shows like shark life and perhaps events like ted and perhaps even like summit are presenting entrepreneurship as a kind of religion which isn't always a, attainable for many people or is that wrong i i think that's highly accurate actually um i think that the like edu entertainment space is quite popular um and i think a lot of people there is this you know mysticism and relig religio religiosity i guess to you know this this tale of the bootstrapped entrepreneur that you know um that pitches and gets their funding and becomes a billionaire it's this whole this whole narrative arc um the truth is is that you know, it's incredibly difficult. It doesn't matter what you're building. The first three years of any venture is a grind and it is brick by brick. And it requires vision and it requires, you know, like a bit of a detachment from reality because otherwise it wouldn't be bold enough to matter and to inspire people that actually know how to help you achieve that outcome. Um, and, and then I just think people don't realize how hard it is, how much effort goes into the myriad of decisions um, in, in, you know, 10,000 small actions that lead to you even having like a small business. Um, so if you're not afflicted by it, like if you don't have to build the thing, then I wouldn't recommend it. It's not like a lifestyle. Um, it's very much something that like, you know, without passion, without, you know, the enthusiasm to do so. Um, it's, and, and, you know, a lot of people do get bit by this, to your point. Like, you know, I meet so many young people that are like, oh yeah, I did this, you know, $100 course on how to start my Amazon drop shipping business or, I'm going to build some DTC product in China and sell it on Instagram or whatever. It never works out that way. Um, so I do think that, you know, there's, there's two separate things. It's like there's the profession of being a business leader and then there's the entertainment value of seeing like, you know, Mark Cuban tell somebody whether or not he wants to invest in their company. What do you make, Jeff, of the shift in the zeitgeist? More and more critical, more and more people are very critical of big tech, of, Companies now like Uber, I know you guys were early investors in Uber on their consequences on inequality on the economy. Do you think that this is fair, that people are becoming more and more suspicious and critical of big tech? Absolutely. I mean, you just check the tape. It's, it's people's incentives drive their behaviors. And these are public companies that have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize shareholder wealth. And if you don't pay for the product, guess what? You're the product. So if you're, you know, on Facebook, if you're on Instagram, if you're, you know, getting, you know, free shipping, all those kinds of things, there's a reason for it. And that's because that there is a way to find more yield out of your commerce and your behaviors for those organizations. Um, and, you know, in terms of, you mentioned Uber, like the, I think that there was an era in Silicon Valley and technology that, you know, it was like, well, it is tech, so therefore it's good. You know, like it's, it's you know, we're, we're do no evil, right? Um, it really comes down to the individual organization. It comes down to the priorities of that organization and those leaders. 
and what they're looking to maximize for. And so if it's an all out drag down profit race, then of course you should be suspicious. And if you, again, look at the behaviors of all these organizations and the ways in which they've, you know, they, they, not that they have, it's that they do you know, manipulate all of us. Um, it's, it's definitely a, a moment in time where we need to be more and more careful about, you know, who we trust and uh, with what information. Um, and I also say that a lot of those creators, you know, of the biggest technologies that we all use every day, their idea of, of, a, of a great day is frictionless. They don't necessarily want to interact with too many people. Um, those can be very uncomfortable interactions for a lot of these people. And that's why they were so driven to build a technological solution that, that removed people from that process. Whereas I find, you know, myself and most people really, that's, that's where life comes from is the human interaction, right? So um, I certainly think that there is a lot more self-awareness now in technology, and, and this is such a big group all. I mean, there's biotech, there's consumer tech, there's, you know, there's things that are incredibly important, like, you know, how to empower healthcare in a more efficient way to save your life or your family's life. And then there's, you know, helping wealthy people get a pizza faster to their house, right? So um, there's trickle down effects though of all those too. So while we can sit here and talk shit about, you know, the greedy corporate capitalists, you know, how horrible Travis Kalanick is, and, you know, you watch, uh, super pumped the show and you're like man yeah i hate this guy but the truth is is that you know uh he doesn't get to really enjoy the fruits of those labors because of some of those actions taken right like the reputation still gets tarnished it's not like these people go on and you know live amazing lives um and then the truth and in that case in particular like i use uber every day i use uber eats i use the platform i appreciate the platform so i try to separate the art from the artist a little bit what about your role in creating happiness? I know that um, one of the early figures who, who came to one of your events was Tony Shea. We did a show on Tony Shea recently, a book about Tony Shea. Of course, he's mm. no longer around. He, he, he was an evangelist of happiness, but his life was tragic. He was a miserable man for much of his life. Do you think you're in the business at Summit? Of, of creating happiness in some way, or is happiness itself delusional, illusional? I certainly don't think happiness is illusional or delusional. I think that I can only answer for myself. Um, if you're looking for, you know, an outcome, I would say joy would be the emotion, the feeling. And the difference is that happiness can be fleeting. I can eat a Twix bar. I can, you know, watch a movie. I can have a laugh with a friend and my life could still have major issues. So I can have fleeting moments of happiness, but to really achieve like, you know, a serendipity, a joy with, you know, it's, it's, it's a cascading set of decisions and relationships that have to do with your, your, your family life and your friendships and your health and your, your job and your work. And there's just, you know, a million ways to get thrown off from that. So no, I don't believe anybody lives in joy all the time. I think in the case of Tony, you know, you have a guy, who um, deeply loved community and empowered community through his work, um, both in downtown Las Vegas, at Zappos. Like, he was a very empowering figure. And he was uh, introverted. He was, a, he was a true introvert. Like, very, very difficult for him to socialize in, in large groups and even with his friends. You know, like, he, he wasn't too capable of expressing his emotions. Um, but the thing that brought him great joy was these large community gatherings and experiences. I'll just give you one metric. When he, um, 
was thinking about what to invest in downtown LA or downtown Las Vegas. Um, you know, apples to apples. Do I do a pizza shop? Do I do a bowling alley? The metric, the KPI that he would use was collisions, collisions. He was thinking about how often do people in community run into one another? We live in the apartment complex. Are we going to, you know, play pinball together? A movie theater he didn't really love because there's no collisions, right? Maybe in the popcorn line, but then the two hours that we're there, we're just sitting and we're watching a show. So uh, the way that, you know, I would really frame Tony is it certainly is tragic. You know, he, he, he definitely had his demons and, you know, I love the term, the head can be a haunted house, right? And I think that for him, he always had those. But um, he, he was an immensely happy person for the vast majority of the time. I'd say, you know, we knew him for 15 years and 12, 13 of those 15 years, he was, he was definitely happy. He just was an introvert. He was just, um, you know, emotionally a lot more flat than I think people are used to. Um, and, it, you know, nothing in life is guaranteed, right? It doesn't mean that you're always going to be happy. It doesn't mean you're always going to be grounded. And, you know, you talk about the, the, the wealth and, you know, sort of that, that big separation. But, you know, he had all the cash, but it's not the thing that, you know, made him happy, obviously. He was very much pu uh, committed to the public good in theory. And, and so are you guys at Summit. I know you very much committed to a number of nonprofits, including Conservation International, Beyond Conflict, and um, the anti recordivism um, coalition. Um, how do you make those calls in terms of nonprofit, and how does that integrate into the summit events and the community? The, these commitments to environmental and social justice movements. Well, those ones are particularly my own taste. Those are the boards that I've sat on or sit on. Um, you know, Summit has a, a wide, wide berth of organizations that it works with. I'd say that, you know, for one, anytime that we do a physical event, we like to do something local. Um, so if it's in, you know, L.A., we're working with L.A. Can or we're working with tree people or, you know, we're, we're bringing observers to actual court cases um, in in uh, Utah or Colorado. We were working with Conservation Lands Foundation. Um, when we did our first summit at sea, we did the first marine protected area in the Bahamas that we raised the money um, for with the Nature Conservancy to build a 90-mile uh, MPA, no-take zone. Um, and so I think that context is really important to us. Like, you know, if we're going to go somewhere, we should do something. And then it's also what our attendees want. Like, the participants in our, in our events want to um, be a part of something significant. They want to give back. They want, you know our help and IDing, you know, what organizations are really exceptional and, and worthy of not just their capital, but their time and their attention and their relationships and resources. And so I think we've been really lucky to, you know, have from the beginning, the very, very first summit events, it was the founders of Donors Shoes and Change.org and uh, Feed Projects and Charity Water. And, um, you know, and then we were mentored by Ann Veneman, who is the Secretary General of UNICEF and a bunch of other really, really great impact leaders. Um, and so there's for-profit, non-profit, and policy answers to changing the world. There's content, there's what you do, there's what I do. I think that, you know, all of these things matter, all these things count. Um, and what I'll say just about the three organizations that you pulled up, um, recidivism, the environment, and then beyond conflict, which is really like, you know, conflict resolution and the science behind it. These are things that, you know, I particularly am passionate about. And I'm, I'm very thankful that I had the platform of Summit to both meet these great leaders and then you know, be able to provide value to those organizations. And what about the role of the conventional state of politics? How does that play out in Summit? Do you see that as 
in the 21st century still relevant or do we need to work outside politics? Uh, I'd say yes and yes. It's tremendously relevant and it has a huge impact on our day-to-day -day lives. And we also desperately need to work outside of politics because uh, it isn't the end-all be-all or the only way that our lives are affected if you think about it from a, you know, a sociological perspective. What I would say is that uh, sentiment drives policy and so the market, content, what people are reading or watching, that can drive sentiment, which in turn drives the policies of our elected officials. Um, so, you know, if you want to think about it that way, it could be academia, it could be movies, it could be businesses, um, and it could be nonprofits. It's the hearts and minds in a sense, right? Um, but, you know, we try to stay uh, big tent at Summit. You know, like we certainly, you know, you can probably guess our liberal um, positions on many issues based on the organizations that we support and that we work with. Um, but, you know, I think that compromise is this incredible achievement of, of humanity. It's now a dirty word in politics, so you compromise. But that means that we both saw something different and we came to a conclusion that worked well enough for both of us to move on to the next issue. So I really appreciate, you know, practical, radical approaches to you know, these solutions and outcomes. And um, yeah, I, th I think that, you know, it'd be great if we could be more politically active and more connected to that stuff because it does have such a huge impact on all of our lives. You mentioned practical. There's an interesting new group called Praxis. There was a piece in the Financial Times today about um, a, a project to rebuild Silicon Valley as a real life haven for digital investors, very much built around the principles of Web3 and crypto. I'm not sure how, if you're familiar with the Praxis project. Not. In a way, it's like Peter Thiel's offshore project. What do you think of these sorts of things? Uh, I'm not familiar with Praxis, so it's hard for me to speak to it. Is it, is it a DAO? Is it a Web3 project? Do you know much more about it? Um, it's an attempt to, as I said, uh, at least according to the yeah. FT. The, uh, there's, there's some huge red flags here. There's no such thing as utopia. Uh, there's no such thing as homeostasis, let alone utopia. Homeostasis is like a totally, there's things that are growing and dying at all times. So the idea that, you know, the ecosystem achieves balance, that's a human construct. Um, and then utopias certainly don't exist. And then digital utopias triply don't exist because that sounds a bit like a nightmare to me. Um, what I will say is that, you know, we are just on the Web3 and there's so much inflammatory language, I'm sure, for you when you read about, you know, that type of an organization and sort of the patterns that are emerging from the things that you're showing me. What I would say is this is chapter point one, right? Like the technology is definitely revolutionary. It is a better ledger system. And that sounds innocuous, but it's actually tremendous. And while, you know, 1% of these companies or these organizations that we read about in crypto and Web3 will be the ones that will impact the world, they will be the Googles of their era. They will be the iPhones of their era. Like, you will see tremendous, tremendous change come from these platforms. Um, and there is a whole crew of people that are just using it to make as much money as they can before, you know, and get out before the other suckers realize it. And there are those that are truly trying to harness the power of that technology to build better systems, and that's probably always the case. Um, in terms of things like, you know, Peter Thiel's offshore, I think you're talking about Seasteading Institute. Yeah, right? Seasteading. 
I like anything that challenges the status quo. I like that they, you know, look, I do. I think they're going to do it. No, I don't think that there's going to be, you know, floating uh, sovereign states. But that's probably the case when somebody was like, yo, we can go to America and build a new nation. And like, you're an idiot. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? That's that should be the reaction. But I, I always support and love anybody that has a crazy big idea is willing to put, you know, capital and reputation behind it to explore it to see if it's possible. And, you know, if you look just at history, it's more likely than unlikely that Texas is not part of the United States in 25 years. That's that's just the historical. Now, do I believe that's what will happen? Probably not. But we also think that the era and epoch that we're in is the one that well, will yeah, be and, in the future. Uh, you're speaking from knowledge there, Jeff, because I know you live in you live in Austin, right? I do live in Austin, but I don't know that this is more like Juan Enriquez or Ray Dalio, you know, study of the last thousand years and how governments, you know, grow and shrink. And I don't think people in Texas are like, man, we're going to secede. That's not that's not on anybody's mind. I'm simply saying that, you know, sea setting sounds crazy and it is crazy, but it might be a lot less crazy than we think. Well, this is all good stuff. Make no small plans from uh, Jeff uh, Rosenthal and his three co-founders of, of Summit. Lessons on thinking big, chasing dreams, and building community. Certainly, he's articulated those lessons of thinking big and chasing dreams and, bring, and building community in this conversation. Congratulations, Jeff, on the, on the book and on, on, on Summit in general. Um, final question, which we're asking everyone who comes on the show. Uh, Jeff Rosenthal, one of the co-founders of Summit and the co-author of Make No Small Plans. Uh, Jeff, who, who, who runs the world? Who's in charge um, in mid-April 2022? And you're talking to me from TED, one of the power centers of the world in Vancouver. Um, I mean, man. Who runs the world? First of all, Andrew, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I think the power of capital is forever. And, you know, he who holds the bag makes the rules. And, you know, we are in an unfair game and an unfair system and, you know, a greased wall that we all have to climb and compete. And, um, you know, there are incentives for those that, you know, have capital and have power to retain that. Right. And so um, the commons does come second in a sense. What I will say is that if you watch what's happened in these you know, major kind of nationalistic movements um, around the world or, you know, just just what's transpired in the last three or four years politically, globally, um, it's certainly the people, man. I mean, like, you know, the wealth gap is what it is until policies change, you know, and policies can change. Um, and I'm not saying that that's better or worse. I'm simply saying that if the people demand it and their governments pass the laws, then it redistributes and restructures power and capital in society. Um, so it is certainly today, April 2022, those who can stroke the check that make the rules. Um, but my hope would be is that, you know, in the near future that, you know, both some of these emerging technologies allows, you know, through proxy and through other means, um, people to really have more of a hand on the wheel on their own futures.